The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Why is shame such a powerful emotion? How does it affect us mentally, physically, emotionally? I'm Nadia Davis. I'm a mom, author, attorney, and kundalini yoga teacher who has experienced public shaming that brought me to my knees. On this podcast, I'm going to tell you how I'm living the work taking shame out of the shadows. I'll give you real-life advice and skills to take away with you throughout your day. You'll hear from powerful guests who have overcome trauma and emerged stronger than ever. You too can ban the shame within and around you. Join me. You are not alone. Hi, I'm Nadia Davis, and I'm a mom, attorney, kundalini yoga teacher, and author of Home is Within You, a memoir of recovery and redemption, and a roadmap out of the choking grasp of shame. We all deserve a safe place to share, cry, and be vulnerable. Through this podcast, I am here to tell you and show you that if you can't find that place outside you, There is a place within you that can heal all. I call it home. So, welcome home. Shame affects every single part of us individually and collectively. Disguised in fears and judgments within us, affecting every cell. Yet often, brutally delivered publicly at the same time. What is the result? What I've learned the hard way is that shame is the mind's most vehement thought and emotion that separates us from our true selves and from each other. Every day I see people struggle with the emotion of shame, unrecognized, It ends up being projected out onto others, and people are suffering. It's time that change. It's time that we build human connection with each other to support each other's struggles. And it's time that we build emotional awareness and spiritual connection, often blocked by our own shame within. Why is shame such a powerful emotion? How does it manifest? How does it affect us physically, spiritually, emotionally? And how can we transform shame into power? Connect with core wounds. Lift layers that our mind has created that block us from our true selves and each other. That is what this podcast is about. I speak from a place of surviving public shaming on a scale that brought me to my knees. In fact, it brought me to suicidality. I found a way out. I want you to also, but I also hope that by bringing shame out of the shadows, it will be reduced worldwide. It'll be reduced in our nation. It'll be reduced in our communities, in your family, and also within yourself. My story includes treatment, jail, hospitalizations, forced family separation. All of that through which the shame within me only grew 
the shame outside me, projected at me from media, was so overwhelming, my self-will alone did not work. It came to finding that space within me that I know you can find too, to walk through all the outside shaming. When we do that, we can find freedom. We can stay connected to the only truth that matters. And that is that we are all infinite spirits, whole, divine, and complete. And nothing has changed that. Nothing anybody has said or done to us, including ourselves. Whatever your beliefs are, there was a spark, something that started it all. Whatever that spark is, whatever that energy is, here, we're tapping into that because it is the only truth. And we came from that energy, that spark. No matter what, it is unchanged, continues on. And it is that truth that we will stay connected to in our home within. Today, I am living the work, staying connected to that home within me. I sense it when I am disconnected and I run right back to it. Always seeing that shame through fears and judgments within me have separated me. They separated me since childhood. You see, Here today on this first episode of podcast, I am going to share childhood, adulthood, and recovery. I had to start in my recovery journey a long and arduous path. I had to start and the progress really only started when I learned how shame had showed up in my life, my whole life. So, childhood. How did shame manifest generations before me, then in my own life and childhood? Shame, for me, was handed down. It was through discovering my parents' journeys that I then returned to a wider perspective of past, present, and future, a state of mind which was empowering versus shame within me that kept me alone and in the dark. The book begins with my father's story. Chapter one is poverty is not living in a small house. It is living in a small world. My father, my inspiration. He. He. Was flying through the air. Having been thrown out by a foster parent after he was sent to a family and his mother was sent away for tuberculosis. As he was flying through the air, something amazing happened. He situated his feet such that when he landed into a pile of trash and manure, he said to himself, I am going to get out of this hole. And sure enough, He did. My father, again, an orphan field worker, grew up in La Colonia de Ezisiete, a barrio in Santa Ana, with an outhouse, very poor, with grandparents that adored him and loved him, and in what he knew and understood as a haven of friendships and of neighbors that worked hard and 
kept an eye out for each other. All the while, outside their barrio, discrimination ran rampant. From movie theaters that had segregated seating, where African Americans and brown people had to sit upstairs. From pools that they were not allowed into, and then eventually only on certain days at certain times due to this discrimination and segregation. When my father began school, he went in with some dreams that Papa Leandro, his step-grandfather, had instilled in him while he worked in the fields with him while he was in grade school. Papa Leandro said, Mientras yo pueda estar por los files, tú vas a ir a la escuela. Or, while I work hard in the fields, you are going to go to school. Not that leaving the barrio was so important, but the fact that little Wally had something for the world. So when he went into school to begin his dreams, he sat in his seat. A school official walked in and said, You, come with me. My father obliged and was walked down a hallway and was brought to a classroom that had only black and brown children. My father knew that there was something odd about this, that all the children in the classroom that he had been taken from were Anglo and of light skin. Why had my father been placed there? Because his last name is Davis, a namesake that I proudly carry on. Wallace Davis on paper looked as though he was a white dude. But when you saw my father, he was nothing but that. Tall, dark, and handsome, with indigenous-looking eyes, dark eyes. It was that characteristic that the person merely focused on when they dragged my father out of that room. His name was not Rodriguez or Rios or Yorba, as is in our lineage. Blatantly straightforward discrimination based on skin color. My dad set out on that day to prove everybody wrong. He was going to dream big. He was going to change the world. And that's exactly what he did. He worked throughout grade school. He founded a Latin jazz band called the Continentals. He was president of his class, played every sport, was the top sportsman, the band leader. And he carried on what had been set in stone as a child. As a child who lost his mother, who had an absent father, who had absent fathers. My father was raised fatherless. His father was raised fatherless. In fact, my grandfather's impregnated many Southern California, beautiful indigenous women, and they bootlegged with them. The Wallace R. Davis clan, they were caught. And the original Davis scandal came out all over the news headlines. My great-grandfather's and my great-grandfather and uncle took their own lives as a result of public shaming. What was my grandfather, Wallace R. Davis, left with? 
unhealed wounds, and his own alcoholism. My father watched his own father die of alcoholism. He, in pain, with unhealed core wounds, raised himself. My fatherless father also raised me. The grin and bear it mode from early childhood on, whether it was the discrimination, his mom dying at an early age, the segregation, his father being absent, all of those core ways that his survivalist mind latched on to whatever stories those core wounds made, instilled in my father a grin and bear it mode. He went to City College, was a janitor at his own high school. He went to Cal State Long Beach and then became the first Hispanic accepted and Native American accepted into UCLA Law School and then the first Spanish-speaking attorney to graduate from UCLA Law School. Just prior to graduation, in the height of working so hard, he thought he was going to give up. Multiple jobs, multiple studies, in this grin and bear it mode. He was my hero. He walked into a restaurant one night and landed his eyes on the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. Ermgard Wally Herman, my mother, born and raised in Frankfurt, Germany, during the war. As I was writing the book and diving into my father's history, as I was writing the book, diving into my mother's history, something overcame me. And it was this acceptance of this generational trauma and way that our minds kept them hostage to patterns, to their core wounds. A wounded, grin and bear it mode father meets a wounded, very detached, emotionally beautiful woman. They merge. Now, my mother was escaping an abusive relationship when she left on an airplane to visit her sister who had married a GI. Within her was a little girl who grew up during the war, who witnessed. U.S. soldiers raping neighborhood girls who experienced being separated from her parents as Hitler sent all the pure German kids out to the farmlands without any explanation about what was happening. My mom, all alone on this farm, sought refuge in the animals. And as they ducked for cover there, There was no human looking her in the eyes to say, what's really going on in there? Your feelings matter. Why don't you try and put a word on them? No. My grandmother, Oma, my grandfather, Opa, both of them, had no ability at all to dive into their wounds. They raised my mom. So my mother, she was raised by two individuals 
that had not yet even cared for their own wounds. Together, they forged a battle to save the world. Together, they supported each other, my father through law school, my mother, the many children being born at home. And it is in these realizations while writing the book that I realized, okay, this is my father's, my hero's mode of living, a grin and bear it, a save the world mode, a belief somewhere deep down that his own needs did not matter, that he mattered through outside achievements. And my mother, with very little ability for emotional connection growing up during the war, her parents having struggled so much, having had to be strong, a beauty, she found her value addressing her core wounds through presenting perfection and perfectionism. She sought to feel loved, to feel a sense of worth by having everything constantly in order in the house, by not expressing her needs, and also by saving the world. My father became a national hero, suing the Santa Ana Unified School District for a more modern form of discrimination called discriminatory ability grouping. When he became a new lawyer, parents came to him and said, my kids are also being filtered into classes only for black and brown children because they were being misdiagnosed as mentally retarded. How on earth can this pattern still be happening? Here was Wally, a once orphan field worker janitor who didn't speak an ounce of English and was discriminated against in the community. I'm sorry, in the city and county and in school. He became an attorney. He saw it was happening again. And he sued the Santa Ana Unified School District, and he won. He cited the Brown versus Board of Education lawsuit and Mendez versus Westminster. And the law was changed in the state that all children need to be tested for aptitude in their primary language. He was with my mom at this time. My mother, keeping everything in order at home, began in her own way to save the world. She became the Catholic Woman of the Year and helped many Vietnamese refugee families. I went along with her. Those were the two examples that I was raised through and with. Now, being the youngest of seven was interesting. Seven kids in a nine-year span, it was always busy in the household. The funny thing is, and I say this in the book, I don't remember a lot of detailed things prior to the age of five and after the age of five. But there's two reasons. It was either a very severe brain injury from an adult near-death car accident where I had 22 broken bones, a punctured lung, my brain was bleeding, and I was not breathing when found. That either wiped out a lot and or the trauma that happened as a child. It set in stone a way that my brain operated that was literally in a box. My whole entire identity, and please, please, Use this to go back to identify your childhood core wounds because it is 
in these core wounds that our mind still grasps hold onto us and sends triggers separating us from that only truth that matters and from our true self and ultimately from each other. All of it comes from these wounds. And in a home within, the more we are aware of fears and judgments that come up, the more and more we can prevent that separation. I had to begin by diving into my childhood core wounds. Trauma therapy, EMDR, and writing the book helped so much, and I will get into that later. My core wounds were absolutely a fear of abandonment, a perfectionist way, a I am all alone, so fear of abandonment, I am all alone, creating the grin and bear it self-will mode, two is my worth is through perfectionism, and three, extreme love addiction, not a sex addiction, a love addiction, where self-sacrifice is so intense, I didn't see the warning signs. As a child, a scene played over and over again, and I'm in a room on a table that is slanted and nervous. I want to run, but I can't move. I'm nauseous, and a man walks in. Ravenous, in fear, I am frozen. He starts to poke and prod me, and I am outside myself. It's as though I would go back to that space and I am observing little Nadia. Not her, nor me. A double disassociation because I never understood why this understanding entered my head, why this disconnect would happen. I didn't even know that I wasn't present in the moments. I remember getting mad at myself for fidgeting. And that is where the shame entered. You can't even be molested perfectly. You can't even get this over and done with quick enough. Then it was, I must have done something wrong to deserve this. That is one boilerplate place through which my mind took hold of the innocent little being, that little girl within me that showed up all the time. There is the same somewhere in you. I encourage you to connect to that space and get past the shame. Thereafter, Kids in school started their own form of racial bullying, not knowing what had happened to me in that private space in a doctor's office. But they would say, why is your face dirty? I have a birthmark here. Wash your face. Okay, grin and bear it. Keep going forward. My dad said it was an upside down heart. Um, I kept moving forward. Until the day came that they gave me a note that had a sticker of a black sheep on it. Every kid in my class signed it, and it said, Bob, Bob, black sheep, we don't want you hanging around us anymore. 
Separation. Brutal separation, while I had already been separated within me. That kind of shaming for the color of my skin was matched with the shaming my mind created by being a survivor of a childhood sexual assault. That is the way that my mind kept me hostage my whole life and still can in a heartbeat. But I'm going to tell you how to walk through things like that. Or I'm going to show you how I walk through things like that. Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. I grew up and I replicated my parents in so many ways. I sought out to save the world already in high school, founded an Amnesty International, was in student government, was the basketball homecoming queen. I did canned food drives. I did all sorts of things. And my dreams were high, were big. I was going to go somewhere and make a difference in the world. You know, work for Amnesty International, work for something big and help other people. That was how I would find my worth. So I won a national modeling contest and was sent to New York. That had a big imprint on me. And I applied to UCLA, was afraid with the acceptance letter, showed it to my dad one night, and had come up with a plan. I waitressed uh, throughout high school and came up with a financial plan, having been the youngest of seven kids. So much going on in the house prior to that. Issues with my father's drinking, no one talking about it. Um, no one just saying something. My sisters having moved out, um, just no freaking real talk. Everything, grin and bear it, don't feel at all. I starved myself. That was how I could control what was happening within the house. Then, I dreamed big. This is your worth. And that got me into UCLA. My father said, let's do this. And at UCLA, I finally felt like I had passed that trauma. Not a literal thought, but looking back, I see. I felt like I was up and onwards, my worth had been approved. I loved UCLA. I did a ton of externships, including on the show In Living Color, at KISS FM, at the David Kenyon Juvenile Justice Center, and I saw my future in place. Yet in my sophomore year, I was violently and abruptly the victim of rape. After which my eating disorder returned, a disassociated state returned, and I landed in a relationship with a man that was very unstable And that ended up hitting me. That began this love addiction pattern while I was saving the world for 
some validation of my worth because I had not grown it within me. Shame from the childhood sexual trauma, shame from the adult trauma, said, You should be fearful that anyone finds this out. You are dirty, damaged, broken goods. How could anybody possibly love you? You have to prove your worth. So, when I broke up with that man, finally, and began dating somebody that was healthy and stable and a good man, in the book I explain how when he got on his knees and proposed to me, I walked away. The fears and judgments within me having already turned into shame. I walked away, thinking, believing, I did not deserve true love. In this grin and bear it, save the world mode, I continued on into law school And I describe I was involved in a hunger strike at UCLA and all the other projects and efforts where I felt like, okay, you've stuffed that wound. You've stuffed all the wounds down. Now onwards, no, no, no. We say that, but that's not what happens. Maybe, maybe consciously, but subconsciously, our mind has taken hold of those things that happened and enters these fears and judgments so subtly. It's that kind of stuff we're going to take out of the shadows so that it does not turn into shame. Unfortunately, I didn't know that at the time. And I entered law school so deeply proud I'll never forget the moment that I called my father and told him that I was accepted into Loyola Law School. I could feel his happiness over the phone. His youngest child, his pooby, was following in his footsteps. Little did I know he had told our Ahashamim cousin, Sonia Johnston, keep your eye on her. Nadia is going to make a difference. Because after a summer in my element studying human rights and international laws abroad in Costa Rica and Panama, I returned full of dreams in my element to my second year of law school. Everything was in place. And I had it all snagged from under me. My hero, my father, died abruptly of a heart attack while playing basketball on a Sunday morning. No chance to say goodbye. No if and or but. No explanation from anyone, by anyone. Just a cold grain, body, and carcass that used to hold my father's spirit. With him, all belief in good in the world vanished. How could this be? I would take long drives listening to my brother's music that is the theme song of this podcast and many other songs and just sob, just sob, completely incapable of digesting that loss, the whys. Yet what did my mind do? This is a good thing and it is a bad thing. It is. 
feel closer to his spirit and carry on his legacy because I was very close to dropping out of law school. My mom wasn't eating. The family, you know, was dealing with all the aftermath. And I ended up moving back home to live with her and commuting to law school when I went into the dean's office and was about to resign. When the dean said to me, to be a successful lawyer, you have to grin and bear it. You can't get emotional. And therein I had an answer. No, this woman is wrong. The best lawyers tap in to the human vulnerability within themselves and with others and give the best closing arguments right the best. Why do you think attorneys get a bad rap when they are just cold, cut, and dry and do not manifest, do not share and connect with others about the facts of a case? So I said to her, no, you're wrong. And I stayed in law school. And I pushed through. And I graduated Thanks to the support of so many friends, Veronica, Priscilla, Fahi, Serena, Mia, Alan, Tito, Matt, and so many others, Monica, so many. Together, they convinced me my father's spirit lived on. And I struggled there between this 50-50 balance of very deep depression and this running to stand still, grin and bear it mode, not allowing myself to process loss. And I took on the Davis family representative And having moved back to Santa Ana, gave the speeches for the scholarships named after my father and a school named after my father and just really like came to life in this role. I felt closer to his spirit more than ever. And at the height of that, I ran for Santa Ana School Board and one, the same school district that he had been a child in that discriminated against him, the same school district that he sued to end discriminatory ability grouping. Now, if that isn't progress, then I don't know what is. There I was on the school board, newly elected, and I went to a local community meeting And it is there that a mother stood up and plead for help for her innocent son, Arthur Carmona. I was a brand new attorney. And everyone turned around and looked at me. Los Amigos is the name of it. Beth Martinez, Armando de la Libertad, Ross Romero. I love all of you. They turned to me, and with my bleeding heart and dedication to do something with the practice of law to help people, just like my father did, I said, yes, I will help this young man. I first went to Al Stocky, my father's former law partner for years and his best friend, a mentor to me today. Thank you, Al Stocky, for getting me out of jail. Al Stocky said, yes, this kid was railroaded. You can do this case and the fight to free wrongfully convicted Arthur Carmona began. It caught the nation's attention. And I was able to get a top law firm, Sidley and Austin and Deborah Munns Park through the help of others and a top investigator to take on his habeas corpus petition. Dana Parsons of the LA Times 
took apart the case and it built public support and attention to what had not been entered into evidence during the trial. Arthur ended up being convicted because no alibis were presented, no timeline was challenged, and he wasn't even put on the stand. We did a motion for a new trial, me and Mark DeVore, and we expected to lose I, because it's limited to the evidence that is presented in a trial. There is a whole chapter, and it's fascinating in the book, about the Carmona case, cases, and I encourage you to get it. Through that effort, my best friend, Priscilla, abruptly passed away. She called me saying that she was told that she had uterine cancer, and within a week, she was gone right in front of me. With her by her side in that moment, I was the one who had to call her family. Another body of somebody so near and dear to me who had written a song called The Legacy He Left This World Is You about my father's passing who I had cried with, processing, trying to process the loss. Then she died. Grin and bear it. Suck it up. Keep saving the world, Nadia. How on earth was I going to process those losses? Then, bam. We lost on the new trial. Sidley and Austin announced they'd take the case. Just at the point that I entered a freeway and my car was hit by a big rig. It flipped three times, landed in an embankment out of sight. And I wasn't breathing when they found me. That is the space where past, present, and future all merged into one. And I saw and experienced the only truth that matters. We are all infinite spirits, whole, divine, and complete. And nothing has changed that. We are not these bodies or these thoughts, but our mind separates us from that truth. As another's breath was forced inside me and I returned to a body, that home within was imprinted in my head. But what happened? 22 broken bones, a punctured lung, a brain bleed, I was IV'd to morphine and on life support. What does the mind do? It already was in a survivalist mode. Grin and Barrett saved the world. Grin and Barrett, you are just a body, you are just these thoughts, was ingrained even that much more in those first waking moments. I was in the hospital for over a month before I was sent to a rehabilitation hospital. And I had a breathing machine and I had a button in my hand to the morphine. And I can tell you that those moments were nothing but messages of, I am stuck. I cannot move. I am in pain. I am alone in this body with this mind and thoughts ingrained in me to the core already psychologically from childhood adding a layer 
through which my mind created shame. You will be worthless. You will lose your purpose if you don't get up and fight and pretend everything is okay. Now, like I said before, this self-will and this survivalist mode is good to a certain extent. In the rehabilitation hospital I was at for several months, there were roommates that died giving up. That could very well have been me in a wheelchair, muscle atrophy, skin and bones. And when I woke up in that hospital, I had no idea what had just happened to me. Physically, emotionally, mentally. I did see signs all around saying, Licenciada Davis, get better. And I saw a beanie baby named Hope. I did not yet know that that came from Arthur Carmona, who was still in jail, wrongfully imprisoned. I thought to myself, well, at least I'm still free. I can't walk. But you, like your father, are going to get out of this hole. You will make a difference and save the world. And so, still unable to walk, in a wheelchair, in excruciating pain, this is all explained in the book, the process of that short, long recovery. I went back home in my wheelchair, and I rolled right back into school board meetings in my wheelchair, my mind telling me, you have to prove your worth. Without your roles saving the world, you have no worth. And I went on. The pain was excruciating. The flashbacks returned from childhood. The processing was slow. So my brain latched on to those deep psychological memories and filled it. I walked around in such a highly disassociated mode where you're not really living. You're just walking. And I began to manage alcoholically. I began to manage in a way that had me on the brink of almost feigning while giving speeches to assisting and freeing a wrongfully convicted kid. Arthur Carmona was eventually freed. An amazing story in and of itself. I encourage you to get the book for that. What happened after that was accolade after accolade. Soon-to-be Senator Nadia Davis, an up-and-comer, following in her father's footsteps, building on a legacy. I am so appreciative for all of that. Trust me. If I had been aware and more of made a choice, a conscious choice to be living in those modes, grin and bear it, save the world, like I am now, it would have been different. I wouldn't have waited so long to get the help that I needed for pain, for depression, for flashbacks. Instead, in my heels and suit, I walked up to the then-serving attorney general at a function where he was getting an award and gave a plea for the poor children of Santa Ana and our overcrowded schools. We needed legislation to pass that prioritized education over commercial use. 
when a Marine base was closing with criteria that were super strict. So I walked up, I turned around, he asked his buddy, who is that? Looked me up and down and I walked away. Bill Lockyer tracked me down and contacted me at the law office I was working for. We went on a date. I thought it was a political conversation, but I found out it was a date when he handed me a rose. It was then and there that the connection to the intellectual part of him planted a seed of awe, of love. Shortly thereafter, we went on a date. I was exposed to a highly addictive drug. I made the mistake of taking it, and I got pregnant. My clothes wouldn't have come off, I believe, had I not taken that drug. That is my choice to own, and it took me a long time to get there. We have to be cautious, all of us out there, women and men, transgender, gay, whatever it might be. When a drug is placed in front of our faces, please know you are putting yourself in a jeopardizing situation. I own that now. I got pregnant. And the absolute joys of finding out I was pregnant reinvigorated in me a connection to my father's spirit. When I found out I was pregnant, it was as though my father's spirit was like alive and kicking in me again. I knew it was meant to be. I knew it. And when I first told our child's father that I was pregnant, he actually said, get rid of it before it's too late. And I was devastated. Here I had planned how I was going to raise this child on my own. I had it all planned out. And he began reaching out to me. And I believed him. All of this is in the book. We married, and I entered a marriage that had little, if any, emotional connection and strength and foundation. In that mode, I did exactly what my parents did. I did exactly what my mind told me to do. Be the perfect wife, the perfect mother. None of your feelings, none of your conditions matter. None of them. Grin and bear it. Suck up the loneliness. Just take it all. You don't have any worth otherwise. The next podcast will explain this adult mode of living as I share a story or two and explain how the mind's shame kept me hostage, which led to unhealthy patterns and dealing with the pain, which then were shamed publicly. It was those two layers that I had such a hard time getting out of. I don't want anybody to suffer from outside shaming of their struggles. We need the autonomy, the privacy, and the respect to heal from our own shame within. So stay tuned for the next episode where I explained the adult patterns and most of all, how I got out of the choking grasp of shame, what the three sources of tools are that I use today 
to stay connected to a home within me. Get your free band shame tip sheet, get your 99 cent copy of Home is Within You, and enjoy this song by my brother Mark. Remembering, no shadow is as big as love. Welcome home. Welcome home. Of a flame that never dies. You are not alone. If you are dealing with shame and trauma, please reach out to me through my website, nadia-davis.com. You can get a free band shame tip sheet and find out about upcoming events. I'd love it if you picked up my book, Home is Within You, wherever books are sold. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend, leave a review, and make sure to follow me on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sending warm hugs. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us, and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.